You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, welcome back to the Labor Relations Radio. So if you've been listening to Labor Relations Radio over the last several episodes, we've devoted some time to a couple issues that are major issues affecting the workplace. And that is the attack on the gig economy through independent contractors, as well as uh, something called joint employer status. And these are issues that have been around for a few years. They get a little bit complicated, but in all honesty, they're issues that I personally have not paid a whole lot of attention to, but it affects millions and millions of people's jobs. Well, in a weird twist of events, there is an article that came out last week regarding 7-Eleven and the Massachusetts Supreme Court, which kind of blended the two issues, independent contractor status as well as joint employer, and they're somewhat related but somewhat independent as well. So last week, the Massachusetts top court on Thursday said that franchisees could be considered company employees under state law in some circumstances, rejecting 7-Eleven Inc.'s warning that such a ruling could bring on an apocalyptic end to franchising in the state. Now, there's probably 99.9% of Americans throughout the country have used franchises in one way or another. You've either gone to a fast food restaurant like McDonald's, you've gone to a 7-Eleven, you may have gone to a UPS store. In any case, everybody's aware of franchises, and it's a business model that's been around for a long time. Um, but it's under uh, under assault and under attack. And this apocalyptic end that I read about in Massachusetts may port- uh, portend to other states. And so I wanted to, as soon as I saw this article, I wanted to reach out to somebody who could kind of explain what's going on from the franchiser side of things or franchisee side of things. And so I made a couple inquiries and I found somebody from the International Franchise Association, whose name is Michael Lehman, and he's our guest today. And Michael Lehman is the Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Public Affairs of the International Franchise Association. Now, franchises, there's tens of thousands of them, um, as well as millions of people employed by franchises. It is literally a small business that has taken on the brand of the franchisor. So, As these cases come out or through legislation, the franchise model changes or shifts, it could have a devastating effect on millions of people's livelihoods. So here's Michael Lehman from the International Franchise Association. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Mike Lehman, welcome to Labor Relations Radio. How are you today? Peter, I'm okay. Uh, got a bit of a cold, uh, inherited a baritone voice for our interview today, but we're safely socially distanced no matter what, and uh, we're going to have a, a great time, so looking forward to this. 
Yeah, so um, let's talk about the IFA. What is the International Franchise Association, and what do you guys do? Yeah, so thanks, Peter. So the International Franchise Association is the largest and oldest trade association representing franchise businesses. And when we say franchise businesses in our community, we're talking about franchise brands like McDonald's and Marriott Hotels and Orange Theory Fitness Clubs and on down the line. But we're also, so we're talking about the brands, uh, but we're also talking about the franchisees. And these are the individual business owners, uh, the third party small business people who hold licenses uh, to operate stores and restaurants and shops under a brand's uh, marquee and, and for the right to sell their products and services. Um, so we represent both the franchise brand companies, some of them um, Fortune 500 companies that everyone's very familiar with, but the vast majority of our membership and the overall the, you know, 3,000, 3,500 or so um, businesses across America that, that franchise certain functions, um, you know, they're all, they're all our members. And um, they're all um, the folks that we stick up for, uh, both the franchisors and the franchisees on both sides of this uniquely American business relationship. I was, I was looking around on your website a little while ago and saw that um, franchise employment is around 8.5 million jobs. So you've got, it's a significant portion of the workforce. We do. We uh, just uh, released um, annual economic uh, data that I think specifically says there's 8.2 million um, uh, workers in in the franchise sector today, supported by both franchise brands and franchisees. Um, and our members are um, coming out of the pandemic um, in a very um, strong place. The uh, the state of franchising really is strong, and we've we've seen this in other economic downturns. That you know the uh, business form formulation and uh, employment growth in franchising, whether you look at the financial crisis in the late uh, aughts um, or uh, the current uh, period coming out of the pandemic. You see franchise businesses growing faster than the economy writ large. Um, and there's a number of reasons for that. One, you know, whenever there's an economic downturn, we see, you know, and, and, and unemployment rises, you know, you see folks, whether they lost their job or they're concerned about their job, you see uh, demand for franchises increase. We've had um, some of our brands have had historic franchise development um, in recent months coming out of the pandemic because I think a lot of people are reevaluating where they live and their their work and their lives uh, at this stage of COVID. So we've seen great demand for, um, you know, people who may have been successful in one career and, and, and um, they're looking to pivot to uh, becoming their own boss. 
And that's what's uh, possible in franchising. So um, certainly the, the pandemic was hard on our folks. We lost about 30,000 businesses that shuttered in the first six months of COVID. Wow. And um, yet at this stage, we are back or nearly back to every um, economic metric um, uh, for franchising. Um, and at, as you say, uh, roughly 8 million employees in our community, franchising still represents upwards of 3% of U.S. GDP. Um, and, you know, the, the magic of franchising is that, you know, you have the ability within franchising to, you know, become your own boss and own uh, a franchise no matter what walk of life you come from. The franchise community democratizes business ownership like few others. And um, we uh, just think it's one of the clearest paths to achieving the American dream of business ownership uh, in, 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 in all the world. So. Yeah, what, let me ask you a question. What is attractive about being a franchisee? Is it that, you know, I'm already, I'm buying into an already established brand and I don't have to create something from scratch or is it lower startup costs or higher startup costs? Yeah, that, I think that's, uh, you know, all those things, you're, you're on the right track for sure, Peter. So, you know, starting a business is hard. Small businesses uh, uh, fail at an alarmingly high rate. And so, um, creating a concept, you know, meeting community needs as a mom and pop uh, store or restaurant or whatever it is, um, finding suppliers, um, it, it, technology, you know, all the things you need um, to not just open your doors, but to turn a profit so that you can support employees and, and your customers. All that's extremely hard. And then you add on, you know, the economic um, topics of the current current day, from globalization and you know the internet allowing you know huge companies to compete with Main Street mom and pops for uh, all kinds of products and services, even food delivery, and you it, there, and then you layer on obviously all of the government shutdowns and restrictions during the COVID period. You know, it's just been, it's incredibly challenging to succeed as a small business person today. With franchising, however, you know, we like to say, you know, you're in business uh, for yourself, but not by yourself. And, you know, in franchising, you don't have to recreate the wheel or create the wheel. Um, you can shop the concepts and franchising, you can find a great fit for you. Um, and you have such a head start when you open up a franchise system, or open up a business in a franchise system, because, you know, usually you have a marquee that at a minimum is usually um, recognizable in a local area or regional area, not to mention, of course, the largest brands that are known the world over, but um, folks know the products and services um, that they're likely to uh, 
get when they experience a franchise um, as opposed to, um, you know, a, a Mike's uh, auto shop or a, uh, you know, Mike's sandwiches. If I'm opening a Midas or a Jimmy John's or Firehouse Subs, you know the quality you're going to get, and it's just a, a great boost. And then, of course, during COVID, we've seen on full display all of the resources, all of the assistance, you know, from COVID compliance to finding PPP and working with lenders that you get within a franchise system because franchisors and franchisees, you know, really are business partners. The best franchisors know the way to succeed in franchising is to make sure your franchisees make money. Um, it's a completely symbiotic relationship. There are no franchisees without franchisors and vice versa. And uh, so it's a, it's a great opportunity and we see it with a higher percentage of immigrants, people of color, uh, women, veterans, you know, in our community than some other business sectors. Um, and it's still um, a pretty remarkable path to um, achieving uh, business dreams. So I have a quick question that I want to get to some of the meteor stuff, but when, when did the franchise model, so to speak, um, really take off? I, I kind of think in my head it's the McDonald's Ray Kroc was the start of it, but it, was it going on before then? I think that was the 1960s, but yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, the, uh, the, uh, middle part of the 20th century is, um, when, um, some of the most common, franchise brands that we we all know about, like McDonald's and Wendy's and Pizza Hut and Dunkin' Donuts, um, you know, really started to emerge and grow. Some would say franchising dates back to 1731 when uh, Benjamin Franklin uh, signed the uh, first of its uh, uh, kind, uh, a, a, a franchise agreement with uh, a gentleman by the name of Thomas Whitmarsh um, for, um, for his printing press services. Um, and so obviously lots happened by since then, but certainly the last uh, 70 to 75 years have been pretty good for franchising. And as I think I mentioned, uh, you know, there's, it's hard to keep a, a specific count with all the churn in our community, but there's, you know, somewhere between three and 4,000 businesses that franchise certain functions. I mean, you may not think of UPS as uh, much beyond a, lo a logistics and shipping company, but UPS franchises their UPS stores. Um, just an example of, of how uh, franchising is is far beyond, you know, restaurants and fast food that may come to mind most quickly. Interesting. So one of the reasons I wanted to reach out to you was there's a decision out of the Massachusetts Supreme Court last week involving 7-Eleven, and there's an interesting quote that I think came from 7-Eleven, um, depending on how the court would rule, that it could bring about an apocalyptic end to the franchising in the state. Do, do you Are you familiar with what happened in Massachusetts? We are familiar, yes. So can you explain that for the listeners? Well, so... Um... Maybe I'll step back even with additional context. You know, and uh, 10 years ago, franchise businesses were 
humming along, minding their own business, creating jobs and, and opportunities for uh, workers and entrepreneurs and communities around the country. And then in 2014, <clears throat> you know, we see sort of the policy landscape for franchising change uh, because we see a little known federal labor agency called the National Labor Relations Board announced that it's um, going to pursue McDonald's as a joint employer with their many of their franchise operators. So that was certainly a, um, a shot across our community's bow, and it put us all on notice that you know this is this is opening up what is probably a new era for our community. And what we've seen since then, and in um, federal, state, local areas of government is efforts to, you know, make franchise brands responsible, cul you know, culpable for the actions and outcomes that their franchisees experience. You know, and this is a, a fundamental um, dynamic for our community because franchisors sell licenses to franchisees, but the beauty of our community is that, you know, as a franchisee, you get to run your own business. You get to make your own decisions. And yes, you get to succeed or fail on your own standing, but you get to be autonomous, um, and pay your own taxes, make your own decisions uh, along the way. And so joint employment really disrupts that. And the second sort of cousin issue of this joint employment issue is um, the idea of narrowing independent contractor status significantly, primarily through, or most prominently through these uh, ABC tests for independent contractor status that we see popping up around the country. <clears throat> the uh, uh, California well-known AB5 law that a lot of people are aware of you know, targeted the gig economy and Uber drivers and DoorDash uh, delivery contractors that established an ABC test. Very hard to meet for contractors. Uh, these ABC tests are designed to largely make everyone employees. And what that means in our community, you know, plain reading of these ABC tests seem to create uh, a lot of questions about uh, the um, independence of franchise owners um, because there are some requirements of the, these ABC tests uh, that conflict with other federal laws um, and the requirement in franchising that franchisors maintain some control over their franchisees. Uh, that, some of that control is important. And so, uh, you know, if you're um, everybody loves Dunkin' Donuts. Dunkin' Donuts um, units make money selling coffee, donuts, and, uh, you know, related products. And so some of the control necessary in that brand prohibits a franchise owner from delivering home health care out of their Dunkin' Donuts, okay? So that's just an example of a product or service that, you know, it isn't consistent with the brand. Isn't the large majority of the control relative to the product and the colors on the signs and that sort of thing, not necessarily the employment practices? 
That's exactly right. And so um, there's a lot of controls required under the federal, uh, under federal trademark law um, that, and some of them, you know, most of them by nature are not designed to um, deal with labor or employment issues. But if, you know, the brand requires certain uniforms, certain practices, um, you can see how some of that can uh, impact uh, an employee's day. So there are some blurry lines here uh, without question. Um, so all that is backdrop to the most recent uh, case that you referenced, Peter, which is uh, this recent Massachusetts Supreme Court uh, decision that franchisees uh, can be considered um, under the ABC test um, for independent contractor status in, under Massachusetts uh, labor law. So here's what was confusing to me about the article I read, and this was out of Reuters. Um, is it the franchisee, like the, you know, John Smith who went and bought a, this happened to be a 7-Eleven case, but whether it's 7-Eleven or Dunkin' Donuts, but is it the franchisee, the owner of that business that they're considering employees or the employees of the franchisee? So the, uh, you know, the, to get to the punchline, the result of this case for us was disappointing. Um, the opinion by the Supreme Court there contains some, um, some challenges for us, um, concluding that there is no conflict in their view between the FTC franchise rule and the Lanham Act with the Massachusetts ABC test. Um, and so, you know, we're concerned about what this is going to mean moving forward. The, the question here is really that franchisees would be considered employees of their brands um, because particularly prong B and prong C of the uh, test um, require some things that uh, uh, most brands uh, are going to have, are going to be challenged to, to satisfy. And so it sets up, um, again, in our view, um, conflicts that aren't helpful. Um, although the court tried to uh, address some of these conflicts, um, saying, for one, uh, the court said the, the controls required under the federal trademark law do not themselves preclude the showing uh, required under the uh, A prong of the ABC test. Um, so, you know, as with most decisions, there there was some mitigating language. Um, but, you know, bottom line for us is franchisees go into business to be autonomous entrepreneurs. And we think this case uh, brought by clearly some disgruntled uh, franchise owners uh, brought an issue that does not rec uh, represent the uh, vast, vast majority of the franchisee community. So it's, it's essentially saying that the franchisee, not necessarily, 
well, I guess the next dotted line would be the franchisee's employees, but the um, franchisee, he himself or herself is actually an employee of the franchisor. Um, the decision said that, uh, that exactly that. Yes, that um, um, it's possible for uh, um, franchise businesses to comply with both the FTC rule in our community as well as the ABC test, and therefore um, the law could be applied in Massachusetts to um, have franchisees named as employees of their brand. Okay, so the, this, I may ask you a couple unfair questions because I, I don't think you're a lawyer, right? Correct. <laughs> so these may be unfair. And if you, if you don't feel comfortable answering, that's fine. So by dotted line extension, mm -hmm. would that then apply to the franchisee's employees? The, uh, you know, if the liability would um, extend because uh, employees, um, the definition of employee just gets broader here in the franchise uh, uh, franchise context. So um, sometimes these decisions don't uh, answer all the questions uh, that you're posing, um, but it's a uh, uh, concerning and yet fairly natural extension what you're asking uh, that that may be the case. So Ed, I would venture to guess if the franchisor is the employer of the franchisee and the franchisee engages in, let's say, discrimination, harassment, something like that, they're going to, this seems, seems like it's a backdoor way to joint employer. They're very close cousin issues, joint employment independent contractor status. Yeah, that's like kissing cousin. That's right. Examples. That's right. So joint employment, um, you might think of it as top-down liability, independent contractor uh, status changes that affect franchising, maybe sort of bottom-up uh, liability. Uh, but either way, the franchise brand um, has new faces new liability uh, potentially for the actions and outcomes um, by their franchisees. And uh, we just see that bleed over uh, of this inappropriate liability to a whole host of other areas of the law. Um, I mentioned coming out of uh, the pandemic that uh, access to PPP was such lifeblood for so many franchisees. Uh, we lost 30,000 businesses in the early days of COVID. Would have been many, many tens of thousands more if not for, um, you know, at the time, the Trump administration and Congress's uh, crafting of PPP. It wasn't perfect, but it was, uh, for the most part, it dispensed money very, very quickly from, you know, because it really leveraged private banks. Um, but even in that issue, what we found at the outset was a misapprehension of the business, franchise business model and franchise brands 
uh, and their franchisees were not included um, at the in, in the initial drafts of the PPP because they weren't considered small businesses that they are. Um, we fought to change that language. The affiliation rules for SBA programs were waived as it related to PPP and some of the other emergency uh, loan programs. And that was, uh, you know, probably the most critical uh, policy victory that IFA's had in recent years and uh, enjoyed by a huge swath of our community. But again, joint employment, independent contractor status, misapprehension about how PPP should be uh, written. You just see a lack of understanding um, of the franchise business model across a host of issues. And it's probably because franchising is a victim of its own success. You go into a McDonald's, a Jimmy John's, a firehouse subs anywhere in the country, you're gonna have a great and very uniform experience. And all of that uniformity has uh, uh, blurred in people's minds the reality that each of those businesses are likely owned by individual uh, business owners. They are small businesses, they're local businesses, uh, they keep their resources in the community and that's what we're always uh, uh, trying to educate and reassure people about. Well, so this case came out of Massachusetts, uh, the 7-Eleven case, and you'd mentioned California and AB5 a little while ago. Are you seeing this type of um, judicial oversight, if you will, or, or creep into the other states, any other states, like whether it's California or uh, New Jersey or somewhere else? Yeah, um, we, we are. Um, we hear um, smoke, see smoke um, in various corners around the country. Um, but, you know, this Massachusetts development, along with the AB5 law, are sort of the um, two most prominent examples that we've been tracking to date. And, you know, we um, filed a lawsuit um, against the state of California for you know, seeking clarity, seeking an exemption of franchising from the coverage of AB5. Uh, our lawsuit was dismissed. We thought that was uh, unfortunate. Uh, no ruling on the merits out there, so no clarity one way or the other uh, as to AB5's application to franchising. Um, now we have this Massachusetts ruling, which certainly changes our view of, of the law up there and you know, there may be, um, you know, uh, upshots of, of that case in the days to come. Um, but perhaps even most prominently on this ABC test independent contractor issue is in Washington, of course, we've seen the PRO Act, uh, this bill to enact really more than three dozen very pro-union, very imbalanced provisions uh, to, you know, that would have the impact of taking away uh, employee rights to vote and unionizing huge, sw huge swaths of industry against its will. Um, but we see an ABC test um, framework in that legislation as well. Um, and so that's within, you know, three votes uh, of having a majority of the U.S. Senate be supportive of it. As long as the filibuster stays intact, we'll, uh, you know, we're 
we're going to keep fighting the PRO Act through the rest of this year. But that's a federal uh, proposal that's way too close to comfort uh, in becoming law since President Biden has uh, used every opportunity to uh, shout about how much, how excited he is to sign the PRO Act into law someday. Um, way too close to comfort for a federal ABC test that would, in our view, uh, have the potential of demoting franchisees to employees of their brand under uh, the National Labor Relations Act. And keep in mind the AB5 law, um, either through uh, legislative exemptions or several lawsuits that have come out of it, um, there's over 100 industry exemptions for coverage of AB5 in California. Of course, franchising doesn't have one at the moment. Um, but literally the drafters of that law knew how unworkable it was in California for so many business models. And so they carved out you know, all sorts of direct sellers and real estate agents and, and uh, dozens and dozens of other examples. Um, the Federal PRO Act, which again is, has 47 uh, senators supporting it and has already passed the House, um, there's absolutely no industry uh, exemptions there. It would apply to everyone and would just, that's why we believe the PRO Act is by far the most anti-small business bill in congressional history. Um, and it's the most prominent use of the ABC test um, that certainly we're tracking uh, these days. Yeah, it might help to clarify um, the carve out just what happened in California because as you're indicating, I don't think that would even be possible in a federal bill. But they wrote the AB5, passed it, got a whole bunch of backlash because a whole bunch of people lost their jobs. And then they went out and redid some of the exemptions, like after the fact. And to be able to do that in Congress would be almost impossible. Hmm. Um, well, that's, that's right. And so, you know, if it's, if it's not, if it's clearly even the proponents of AB5 in California have experienced all the pushback, um, the loss of the, the economic destruction of AB5 in many sectors. Um, obviously, this isn't good policy on a national uh, basis, but uh, continues to be something that uh, labor unions are clamoring about. And uh, we're disappointed that too many lawmakers, um, when asked by labor unions to jump, simply ask how high, and there's just no uh, appropriate consideration of the unintended consequences of this um, legislation. And, you know, for a lot of sectors, uh, the ultimate unionization that would um, occur in their industry uh, because of the PRO Act is probably their big concern. Um, but that would take years, you know, um, take a long time. The impact of the PRO Act on franchising is so much quicker, so much more destructive. Um, it wouldn't take years for the impact to be felt by our people really with the stroke of the president's pen signing the PRO Act into law, you change the liability framework in our business model to reduce most of the incentives to franchise at all. Um, through the ABC test for independent contractor status and the as a second joint employment uh, provision, I mean, both of these provisions in tandem, um, you know, would uh, fundamentally disrupt how franchises do business, and of course we have 
thousands of franchisees in our communities with you know, five, 10, 20 year franchise agreements, these long contracts, and this would be the worst changing of the rules in the middle of the game that you could, you could get in our community. Um, and that's why it's uh, job one for IFA to uh, kill off the extremist uh, pro act because that's really what it is. It was, you know, when it was cobbled together many years ago, no one thought this was a realistic uh, proposal, but it's just uh, a sign of our times that, you know, no matter how extremist, uh, you know, policies get, the politics of our, of our time seem to support um, a lot of those ideas. And now we have a pro act um, with 30 pro union provisions, many of them very, very destructive to the franchise community and many other business models um, within, you know, near universal support uh, on the left side of the aisle in Congress. So that's where we're at and that's what we're up against. Yeah. I, I'm going to borrow a term you just mentioned, um, and it, I'm struggling with the answer to this question. You use the term unintended consequences, and I'm, I'm curious as to whether it's unintended consequences or intended consequences. <laughs> and it, so it seems to me, and you, you mentioned that um, it kind of destroys the incentive to become a franchisee. If I'm a small business person, I have I want to invest and open up my own business, and the franchise model seems to work. But ultimately, I'm no longer going to be a business person. I'm just throwing my money into putting up brick and mortar and having a brand, but I'm still going to be an employee. Why would I put my money into it? I Were guess you... that's more of a rhetorical question. I guess it's just I I'm following the the logical chain in terms of what happens to franchisees. Yeah. And, you know, the incentive to become one kind of goes away. When you have independent businesses involved here, franchise brands, franchisees that operate um, their stores, you know, they're separate employers, they're separate businesses, they pay their own taxes, everything's separate. And, you know, to make one business liable for the actions of a business down the street or across the country, um, is just remarkable that we're in a place where this is considered, you know, reasonable policy. I mean, there's nothing other to other to call joint employer and an expanded joint employer. There's nothing other to call joint employer issues other than extremist. Um, I mean, common sense people would say joint employer it remains akin to being made responsible for your neighbor's kids. You know, there's some relationship there. They live in your neighborhood. But why on earth would you uh, be held liable or culpable for uh, the actions of, uh, of your neighbor or even more so your neighbor's kids? Um, but from Jennifer Abruzzo at the NLRB to David Weil, um, nominee for the Department of Labor, I mean, these regulators believe this. They believe that independent businesses should be made liable for the actions of other independent businesses uh, that they have really nothing to do with, certainly in the employment and labor space. Um, but these regulators are biased against the community that they regulate, uh, which is fundamentally inappropriate. But um, unfortunately, that's the landscape all of our folks are operating. Well, it, you know, it's, 
let's get to while in a second because that's that's an interesting one as well so i know there's a lot of opposition to to his confirmation um but like in the massachusetts case that was a unanimous decision of the supreme court and you know it goes to i guess again the question unintended or intended because you would think somebody and i don't know how big the massachusetts supreme court is six or seven people somebody would have some common sense there to say, huh, this could be a bad thing. There's no dissent apparently on this, on the Massachusetts case. No, no dissent. Um, and so, you know, you just have to uh, uh, stand back and sort of marvel at the many, many layers um, of federal, state, and you know, local laws that small businesses have to deal with. And so judges, lawyers can probably find rationale to, uh, you know, cover or not cover anyone they want. But, you know, this was a case dealing with the application of federal law uh, on top of Massachusetts law, multiple federal laws on top of Massachusetts law. So it's just incredibly complex. These are... Um, the barriers to success for so many small businesses who don't have the firepower to, uh, you know, deal with um, incredibly complex legal requirements, uh, again, at all three levels of government around the country. Um, and uh, the uh, Patel case up in Massachusetts this week is just the most uh, recent example of what our folks are up against. Well, and then it, it kind of makes you wonder, um, if, and I'll just use 7-Eleven as the example because that's the case, if, you know, 7-Eleven becomes the employer of all these franchisees and are they now going to have to determine if they're the employer, are they going to have to reimburse these employees for the outlay of expenses that they bought into as a franchisee you know, it, if they're the employer? There have been, I mean, every brand in our business model worth its salt has made countless uh, um, business risk decisions in the era of joint employment. Um, you know, the way franchise brands communicate with their franchisees on a, ho a host of issues has probably changed uh, in virtually every system since 2014. So um, we see, you know, Franchise brands don't choose, um, don't make hiring and firing and employment decisions for any of their franchisees. That much is clear. Um, but there's a lot of uh, federal law requirements like trademark law that create some blurry lines. And uh, the, the less clear the law is, uh, the more opportunity for um, judges to rule as they did in Massachusetts. Um, and we just see from regulators to some of our lawmakers on Capitol Hill and around the country, you know, they're not necessarily interested in legal clarity. They prefer to deal with, uh, to make determinations on a case-by-case -case basis. And that just makes it very, very difficult for small businesses to navigate. If they don't know the rules of the game, it's um, it can be... Um, it can raise the potential to trip, be tripped up by one of the rules. And um, that's what the joint employer issue is all about. 
That's what the ABC test is all about. Making the law so wide open, it's hard to follow. It's unpredictable. And uh, the uh, Massachusetts development uh, shows all that. Yeah. So um, let's talk about David Weil for a minute. He's I, There's a lot of people opposed to his uh, confirmation. And I saw that on your website, the IFA is as well. So who is David Weil and why are so many opposed to his confirmation? And some are obviously they're supportive of him as well. So, yeah. So um, back in 2014, David Weil was nominated by President Obama to be the wage and hour administrator at the Department of Labor. And uh, uh, Dr. Weil at the time was a Northeast uh, University business professor, um, but he had had extensive writings on the nature of the economy and uh, the business community uh, even then. And one of his theories, his most prominent theory is what's known as the fissured workplace which is the idea that uh, businesses are outsourcing and using independent contractor relationships more and more. There are fewer full-time employees um, in his view than in previous generations, and that has all sorts of Im impacts on the economy. Um, he wrote a book on the fissured workplace in which he devotes uh, really two chapters to uh, discussing franchise businesses um, and uses a, a very small handful of anecdotes and um, sort of case studies to highlight his points rather than using real evidence or data. Um, but he found, uh, again, a small handful of franchise systems that he found um, uh, were not treating employees the way he believed they should. So, um, Weil's nomination was fairly controversial in 2014, but he was confirmed by the Senate. He served for uh, almost three years in the Department of Labor, the Obama Department of Labor at the end of uh, Obama's second term. And in office, Weil applied his, you know, fairly biased views against a lot, several business models, rather than enforcing the law and catching bad actors, which is his job. But he um, named names in um, some of his uh, guidance documents and administrator interpretations of sectors that where he sees big problems, um, as if that's even relevant uh, for his uh, role as a... Uh, in catching bad actors and enforcing the law. Um, he, uh, what he found, what he uh, promulgated were three primary actions in office. One was the overtime rule that raised the overtime threshold for um, non-white collar workers up to $47,000. And so that was a big business community issue there was a lawsuit that ultimately struck it down. IFA was part of that, and so um, that was wiped away, but that was that certainly galvanized a lot of small businesses. Uh, and he also uh, 
while also passed a joint employment policy document and an independent contractor status document, um, both of which really telegraphed the while a wage and hour administration's approach to enforcement. Um, and it's, you know, the upshots were that Dr. Weil viewed most um, employers, uh, most business relationships as, as joint employment relationships and viewed uh, most independent contractor opportunities as uh, in reality being employees. Um, so three very uh, tough regulations for small businesses to deal with uh, out of while in his previous tent. Obviously, President Trump takes over in office for four years. Uh, Biden comes in and his first nominee is uh, for the Wage and Hour Administration is David Wiley. Uh, apparently there's no one else um, <laughs> suitable for this role, um, which was just shocking to us because, you know, David Weil is certainly a persona non grata in the franchise community. All franchise business leaders know about David Weil and what he's written about our community, and then he followed suit in passing joint employment guidance document um, that showed you know, he wants to be disruptive to our community. So he was, uh, while was nominated last summer, um, and nine months later, um, after a lot of advocacy against his nomination, um, there will be a vote in the U.S. Senate to, this week to uh, confirm him. It's going to be razor thin um, at best. Um, they're going to have to go to the bullpen and uh, tab Vice President Harris to come in and break the tie to uh, get Weil um, installed at the Department of Labor. Um, and we don't think there's any, obviously we're urging uh, opposition to Weil's nomination. We don't think there's any suspense in this movie either. Everyone's seen this before. We know how Weil views the small business community, um, which is unfavorably. You know, he wants to create, he wants to turn small businesses into big businesses. He wants to dry up entrepreneurship opportunities. He wants to crack down on independent contractors. Um, and none of that's good for Main Street. None of that's good for um, small business uh, and entrepreneurship opportunities. But uh, we'll see what the uh, wisdom of the U.S. Senate uh, determines in the next uh, several hours, really. Yeah, so it, you think he's going to be, uh, the vote's going to happen today or tomorrow, did you say? So it's here on Wednesday, March 30th. We think the uh, procedural vote will happen tonight. The actual confirmation vote will take place uh, tomorrow on the 31st, and uh, he may be settled at the Department of Labor by the weekend. I think I saw something last night. It looked like uh, Senator Manchin was kind of being cheeky about it. Like, you know, well, I'll decide when I decide type thing. Yeah. Well, um, you know, we've seen the death of the moderate um, in American politics over the last uh, several years. And there just aren't many swing votes where uh, people are reasonably going to consider, you know, what we believe is an extremist and a biased uh, 
past and future regulator like Weil. Um, certainly, Senator Manchin is uh, a key vote on the Weil issue. Um, there's one or two others. I think we know their names, um, but that's uh, that's really the whole playing field for this uh, issue. Everyone else is pretty locked in. Yeah, it's the. Uh, assuming you're talking about Kirsten Cinema and and not sure who else. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, maybe, which, maybe closer uh, to one than two. Then. Yeah, I'm actually surprised at some of Cinema's stances. Um, I'm a native Arizonan. I, I grew up there anyway, um, and you know, hearing as she was ascending to the U.S. Senate that you know, oh, she's going to be you know, lockstep with all the progressives and all that stuff. She's taken some firm stances that was somewhat surprising. So what do you think, like, what's the forecast for the, and this may be an unfair question, what's the forecast for the franchising industry? Like, it, it sounds like there's a lot of dark clouds out there. There, These are, you know, us Washington people, we always like to say these are remarkable times, you know, if, if every time is remarkable, then I'm not sure. But uh, just to describe this period as we come out of the pandemic, hopefully, and hopefully the geopolitical uh, theater calms down for everyone. Um, franchising is, has, it's fair to say franchising has per perhaps never been stronger. Um, there's a operation called Franchise Business Review that does a lot of franchisee satisfaction metrics. And they've, um, in their report that came out uh, the big first part of this year, um, they revealed that 88% of franchise owners are happy operating in their brand, you know, and that's the highest level that they've ever recorded. Um, so at, at this stage of the economic recovery, you know, certainly we lost some businesses. Um, the pandemic was extremely hard on huge sectors of the small business community. But, you know, the businesses that persisted um, probably grew closer with their brand in nine out of 10 cases um, as a result of navigating the pandemic together. There was so much communication, there were so many resources, so many best practices um, again, COVID compliance tips, um, help with access to PPP and other lending programs that I think binded our community together. And so we come out of um, COVID with franchising perhaps never been stronger, uh, growing faster than the rest of the economy and providing frankly better both work and entrepreneurship opportunities to people of color, veterans, um, and all corners of the workforce than we think uh, uh, any other business model in America. So, um, so many things uh, are right and uh, succeeding in franchising. We're facing these uh, um, incredibly threatening, artificial, you know, we'll call it, you know, efforts to undo all the good in franchising. These are huge unforced errors um, uh, based on lawmakers with different priorities and incentives than certainly our folks have in creating opportunities and jobs all across America. Um, but uh, overall, uh, the franchise community is, is very, very strong. 
here in 2022. You know, I've, I've had a number of guests on um, folks from ABC and others that have essentially said, get into politics or get out of business. Mm-hmm. And it, it seems like for franchisors and franchisees, they need to be doing that. Well, certainly uh, we agree. We have a grassroots army within the IFA uh, of over 100,000 business owners around the country. And so most people in our community have taken uh, your advice there that uh, if you're in business, you have to be in politics. I mean, we, we view it, I mean, you step back and think any small business owner is a VIP in their local community. They are the type of person that any lawmaker, any politician in there would want to know. And it really is incumbent, uh, particularly on franchise people. Unfortunately, you know, for better or worse, uh, it is incumbent on franchise people to have a relationship with the local lawmakers, um, really local, state, and federal if possible, so that, you know, when these issues come up, they are able to educate on the business model. Because you asked about unintended or intended consequences earlier in the recording. I won't speculate on uh, people's motives, but clearly uh, there are um, misapprehensions and apprehensions uh, about our business model. Some folks just don't understand that McDonald's is an independent business. Other folks don't care that McDonald's is an independent business. Uh, and they're pers- and both seem to be pursuing policies too often uh, that are harmful to our future. But we're engaged in this uh, pro-franchising campaign called Open for Opportunity. Anybody can go to openforopportunity.com, and you can see um, some of the highlights of our business community, the way our folks have given back during COVID, served their local communities, sponsored Little League teams, and schools and charities in ways that, you know, the big corporations, if that's what policymakers want to drive franchising into, simply won't do. And, you know, Starbucks, Walmart, Home Depot, those are spectacularly powerful, great businesses that uh, deserve, that provide products and services that people around the country love. But the difference between our businesses and those corporate businesses uh, one biz- one difference is uh, the entrepreneurship available and possible in our community. No matter how hard you work, you're never going to own the Starbucks and you're never going to own the Walmart. But in our community, uh, there's so much more opportunity for, you know, market entrance, labor market entrance, or immigrants and other other uh, folks of all walks of life to be upwardly mobile within franchising. And we have just countless stories of the cashier, the dishwasher, the the, the uh, entry-level employee who worked long enough, saved money, learned about a franchise system so that they own a store, a hotel, whatever it is. And these are just um, life and family-changing opportunities that are available in franchising. Um, and even if you don't go on to own a store, I mean, how many of us started working at a Dairy Queen, started working at an Arby's or um, whatever other franchise you'd like to name? And to have work experience, 
to be given an opportunity to work at one of our businesses is why we call ourselves in franchising the greatest workforce training engine in America today. Um, so well, many people learn about the working world, get their first professional opportunities in, in our businesses. And uh, there, there's a lot to love here. And uh, we're going to keep uh, supporting and promoting this business model for the 700,000 franchises that are out there and their uh, 8 million employees. Yeah, I think the the big difference is, you know, and it's not to knock Home Depot or Starbucks or Walmart, but those are corporations and, you know, they're corporate-owned stores. And your franchisees are your small business person who's your neighbor or in town, locally owned, that sort of thing in most cases. They're just, they're just different business models. And there's a lot to like about Starbucks and Walmart and Home Depot and any corporate op- operation. Um, they have incredible firepower to deliver um, goods and services that customers want. But right. what you see is, you know, that's the ultimate goal for these labor unions, these trial lawyers. They don't care if they take away small business opportunities. Um along the way towards achieving their goals of corporatizing our systems. And then you watch all the unionization going on at Starbucks. You know, that's, that's why unions have targeted Starbucks because they're already uh, a corporate top-down organization. Uh, they don't have to change joint employment rules to unionize Starbucks. So that's why you're seeing such a retail push there. Um, but that's, um, the scary scenario that uh, the franchise business model is disrupted or taken away such that uh, the incentives for franchising go away and our models uh, become much more like some of these corporate chains. Yeah. So I have a real quick question for you, and I know you probably need to wrap up, and I do as well. Um, Do you do political advocacy, not necessarily endorsing candidates or, or things like that, but do you educate your members on candidate A, you know, is with us and candidate B is against us or anything like that? Um, to, to some degree we do. Uh, we certainly endorse um, candidates who have uh, supported their local communities and uh, uh business owners and employees of all backgrounds in the franchise community. Um, so we have a political action committee. We engage off the field in a number of ways to, uh, you know, support those who support us. That's certainly the uh, American game of politics. Uh, and we are um, uh, playing that game uh, because the stakes for franchising are high. Yeah, I was, I was curious about that because the unions, you know, obviously they put their candidates up and they do the endorsements and they do the member education and all that sort sort of thing. Um, and that's really where they get the, the people in the offices. Um, so I was wondering if you guys somewhat do that as well. Probably not as intensive as unions because it's kind of hard to do. But Well, our friends are probably more fair to call them our opponents in the, in the labor movement have done – remarkable work in making themselves indispensable on the blue team side of the aisle. Um, I mean, it's very hard to, in our increasingly polarized politics, um, 
succeed as a you know candidate on the blue team's side um, if you don't have the endorsement of organized labor. And of course, the late Richard Trumka before it passed, you know, made very clear that uh, members of Congress that don't co-sponsor the PRO Act won't be getting a dime of organized labor money. And, you know, money is important. It's probably the boots on the ground that, uh, you know, the campaign volunteers that uh, organized labor is able to provide. That's the even more compelling uh, reason for a lot of uh, candidates to uh, fall in line with organized labor's wishes. Um, and again, ignore the unintended consequences that stem from those those wishes. Um, but certainly, there uh, these issues are passing, and the Pro Act is um, too close for comfort to uh, becoming law because of the uh, political cloud of organized labor. Yeah, you know, I I don't know if I talked about my background with you, but I came from that side 30 some odd years ago. And I don't think there's a, um, a large understanding on the employer side of the community of how constantly unions campaign, even outside of election cycles. And I'm going back to the Bush one era. Um, you know, I used to be a, uh, the newsletter editor for our local union and we would be getting stuff all the time from Washington. And of course, this was before email that the CWA's headquarters would send us to insert into our newsletters. And whether it was the um, Hillary Clinton's health initiative or, you know, whatever it was way back when. And, you know, that, that was not even in election years. That was like all year long. And so it's a constant push out there. And they didn't get into, you know, endorse this candidate or that candidate, but, you know, George Bush was evil and his policies are evil and, you know, and, you know, here's why you need to do this or that. So, um, but that's going on all the time. And I don't know that the employer community really understands that. Well, Peter, that's right. And we've, we've seen in recent decades, uh, organized labor using more of their resources on politics and moving uh, resources away from union organizing and really representing workers. They, they view changing the law, changing the rules in the middle of the game for small businesses particularly um, as their best path towards uh, growth um, in their business model. I mean, these are basically businesses, uh, labor unions, they exist to make money and their growth opportunities are in the sectors that they're targeting with legislation and other uh, legal attacks. And, uh, but, you know, the, the local national union divide is very pronounced that I think you were referencing there. I mean, we know from our Democratic friends, Republican friends on, on the Hill that, you know, there's a huge divide in what local unions um, versus national unions want from a policy basis. And there's no, there's no bigger example than the PRO Act. There's, there's really no local union that could care less about the PRO Act. Um, and yet some of them are uh, peddling their nationals uh, talking points on it. But at the end of the day, 
you know, local unions want jobs and they want opportunities and, and uh, they want to have a voice and be treated fairly, but, you know, they're not interested in uh, some of these national uh, goals that uh, uh, the larger national unions have that would be so unpopular and disruptive. Um, and so uh, that that's just uh, the state of our times in politics and, and probably these labor issues. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Mr. Lehman, on that note, um, let me ask you, I'm going to put the links to the IFA on there. Uh, and you mentioned, was it open to competition.com? Yeah. Open for opportunity.com. Love okay. to put that up there too. Yeah. Okay. Any other, any other links we should, uh, have the listeners follow? Uh, we could, uh, um, throw up our, uh, FranchiseEconomy.com uh, page as well. Um, that is where any uh, either individual or lawmaker can look at the economic footprint of franchising in either their local state or uh, even congressional district. Um, and uh, that's just a good economic resource about our community. Awesome. I will. I will put all of these links under the audio portion of this episode and. I thank you very much for coming on and clarifying some of this stuff. I, I knew that as soon as I saw the 7-Eleven article last week, I had to reach out to somebody say, okay, explain this. <laughs> so, well, Peter enjoyed it. Thanks for the outreach and uh, for spending time here this morning. All right. Thank you, sir. Have a good day. Take care. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. So that was Michael Lehman with the International Franchise Association. And as you can tell, uh, talking about things like independent contractors, joint employer, the PRO Act, AB5, a lot of these issues can be really complicated. And so what I've tried to do over the last several episodes is to have experts on who can kind of break things down and thinking maybe if we talk about this enough, people will start getting how important this is to the American economy. When you've got 59 million Americans who are independent contractors and another 8 million who work for franchisees and various government at, or the government at various levels starts attacking those business models, it can have significant ramifications on the economy and the way America does business. So if you have any questions or you want to reach out, um, I'm leaving a bunch of links under the audio portion of this episode, but you can always reach out to us at Twitter uh, or on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Leave a comment under the comment section or under the audio portion of this episode of Labor Relations Radio. And do me a favor, share these episodes of Labor Relations Radio with your colleagues. Uh, the more we grow, the better off people will be informed, regardless of what side of the aisle they're on. Um, so it's a different perspective we're trying to bring to the grassroots level, if you will. And we appreciate you listening. Appreciate your support. Subscribe to laborunionnews.com's uh, Morning Digest and spread the word. Thanks for listening. been listening to Labor Relations Radio.